And I think what I find at New City is that when people can be in meaningful, supportive, deep relationship that isn't just about comfort, but is also about accountability and growth as as a human, um, people are able to show up better to social justice spaces and people are able to um, rest meaningfully instead of just like crash landing into into a bed so like friendships are kind of like they they just help monitor the intensity of activism and and they help you stay in it longer um, because of that Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin-Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco-Russert, co-host and co-producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. This is one of our bonus episodes where we share the full interview we conducted with Pastor Tyler Sitt from New City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Tyler is a church planter and shares about his congregation's work of community listening and how that was able to shape and influence the internal and external response they had to the COVID-19 crisis, as well as to the uprising in Minneapolis after the murder of George Floyd. He also invites us to reflect on what it means to convene community in a time of social unrest. Hi, everyone. My name is Tyler Sitt. I am the church planter and pastor of New City Church in South Minneapolis. Um, Tyler, to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about this church plant. Tell us about being um, a young leader planting a church and tell us a little bit of the story of your church. So first off, church planting is amazing. And I didn't have church planting spoken into my life until uh, the very end of seminary. And if I didn't have church planting spoken into my life, I probably wouldn't have really considered it. So um, I just wanted, I always like to start off these interviews just naming like, if you haven't considered church planting, seriously discern about it. uh, Because um, there's kind of this trope of church planters being like white guys with big arms and great teeth. And <laughs> what I have found <laughs> is you don't need to be a white guy or have big arms or have great teeth to <laughs> create communities that follow Jesus. Hmm, uh, thank God. I love it. So, right, um, right. so I definitely want to preface with that. But yeah, so New City Church is a multi-ethnic church. We reflect the racial demographics of the city of Minneapolis, almost to the percentage point in Mm. African-American, Latinx, white, and Asian populations, Um, not in Native populations, or we have a significant Somali and Ethiopian immigrant population, Mm. and we're we're not representative in that way. Uh, We are probably um, uh, 50%... Uh, queer people um Hmm. it it seems like more and more people are coming out every day so it's that number keeps bumping up but (laughs) um uh really significant uh queer community i'm an openly gay uh pastor in the united methodist church so um kind of primed the pump for that and then something else that people are usually interested in is um about 40 percent of the people who worship at new city don't actively identify as Christian. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of folks who went to church and then got really burned out by it or um, 
kind of bored by it. And then there's a handful of folks who never went to church at all and uh, who just are deeply hungry for something more. And they feel like New City is the place where they can explore that. Oh, I'm sorry. And also age-wise, we are almost entirely millennial. My parents do drive 45 minutes on a Sunday to worship with us to hear their son preach. So there, there is that. But, <laughs> wow. but um, parents are awesome. That's so parents, cool. Yeah, parents are awesome. But um, almost entirely millennial, uh, a handful of Gen Z, and then a handful of older folks too. Wow. And and when did you plant the church, Tyler? We started a weekly worship service on November of 2017. Okay. Okay. And yeah, and it's just been such a journey. Like, um, uh, I mean, most recently, obviously, like New City Church is a short walk away from where George Floyd was murdered. Mm. Uh, my apartment is like, my old apartment is like literally on the same block as <laughs> where that happened. Um, and, and New City is equidistant to the third precinct that burned down. So like in terms of the uprising, we were right there, uh, right, right there. And, um, and that's just like the most like, uh, highest profile news event that's been going on, but we live in, a, uh, we, we do ministry in a spot where there's always, um, some pretty significant, like stuff happening. There's always a lot of action. There's always a lot of ministry opportunity and there's always a lot of hope and community organizing. Hmm. That's great. Tyler, I have two questions. One, one may be a little uh, like off topic, but, um, <laughs> but that's okay. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's sort of off topic, but the first one is just about the, like you talked about the, tr- where your church is in Minneapolis. Like, can you talk about, um, your congregants, your, the, the people, the community of the church and what's happened during the life of the church post George Floyd's uh, death. Like what, what's happened at your church that, that is different or that is um, any programming or ideas you've had around that event happening ways people yourself or other people in the church have changed as a result of it, if they have, or if this is something that's been going on in Minneapolis, it, it hasn't made you change. It's just made you more aware, kind mm. of confirming some of your ideas about the, about the community. That's one question. The off question is just it, off compared to that question. But earlier you said about how church planting was spoken into your life. You said it way more beautifully, but can you talk a little bit about that? Like who spoke it into your life in seminary? Is there a professor that you, that, that inspired you? I'm just curious. I love the way you said that. So I mm-hmm. assume it has some meaning. So what, who, who, and how did they speak it into your life to do a church plant? Yeah. Um, I'll answer the second one first. So um, I, was in a meeting with my district superintendent, um, who was just kind of one of those, like, I'm sorry, in the Methodist world, district superintendents are the, the people who oversee the pastors. So there's a district superintendent of all the pastors in the Twin Cities. And while I was in seminary, I was going through the ordination process. Um, she leaned over her table and was like, Tyler, I want you to think about church planting because you think like an entrepreneur and you pray like a mystic, and that's all you need to church plant. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I would later find out that you need 
slightly more than that to judge Brand. <laughs> so that wasn't it. That wasn't the secret sauce. No, that wasn't. The, but like, but as far as um, yeah, like uh, uh, inward character traits that I rely on, certainly uh, kind of entrepreneurial thought and and mysticism are key to that. You also need like a hundred people and a bunch of money and like a contract. Yeah, those things. Yeah. Just, just those things. Yeah. <laughs> and parents who will drive 45 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah. And, and of course, like that was very context specific. I know people who have church planted with a lot less than I have. I know people who have church planted with a lot more than I have. So um, um it's a really the the reason why church planting as a discipline is so exciting to me is because it can look so different across contexts. Mm. Um, so uh, so that was that question. And then in terms of the first question, um, yeah, so New City about a year ago did some community listening. It's a whole long story, but we did a lot of community listening, and we realized that. Uh, we are really being called to do work around trauma, specifically racialized trauma. Um, we, uh, in our community, Rachel Martin uh, is a, a therapist, anti-racist practitioner who partners with Resma Menikin, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands. And their whole approach to anti-racism work is looking at, um, looking at racism as trauma. And uh, looking at like what happens not only mentally in in racism but physically, like what happens physiologically um, in white bodies and in bodies of color uh, during conversations of race, during confrontations, during agitations, and then during current events. So, um, so that uh, uh, has been an influence in New City Church as we continue our theological imagination of. Um, uh, the incarnation. And as we've been t- uh, talking through all of this, we um, discerned that we need to start something that supports people of color in accessing trauma care, trauma-informed care. Because what we found from our community listening is that um, there are many like free or sliding scale clinics or therapy offices in Minneapolis but almost all of them are staffed exclusively by white people, which is, you know, I'm just glad that they exist at all. And for a person of color to receive therapy and healing practices from another person of color, it usually means going out of network and having to pay exorbitant therapy costs. So uh, we established uh, the Incarnation Fund, and that is a fund that supports um, people of color in accessing not only um, trauma therapy, we especially favor somatic experiencing, if any of you are familiar with that, but also um, spiritual direction and nature-based therapy, because um, we believe that uh, Jesus, through the incarnation, took on a body, and God became a body, and therefore, if we get to know our own bodies better, then we can get to know God better, and trauma is like a tool of the empire to disrupt all of that. So, uh, so we see that all very missionally aligned and we've done a lot of theology around that. All of that was started a year ago and then George Floyd happens. And it was like mm-hmm. very evident to me that that past year was 
like God's rehearsal for us to be able to show up in big ways for this, because like, obviously the trauma of, um, of such acute violence happening so close uh, to our church building and for that violence to be met with such a array of um, indifference, of victim blaming, of we need to change, but we can't change in the way that you say that we need to change. <laughs> like um, all of that is is compounding trauma. And I'm not a mental health expert, but I am a church planter. So uh, we created um, like the night that the news came out about George Floyd, we hosted a vigil. It, I think like uh, 20,000 views was the last time that I saw it, but it was like more, it was more well attended of any digital event that we've had, including like all of our Easter's combined. <laughs> and, wow. um, and, and then we started uh, a black healing circle. Um, we started a, a curriculum and group for parents of white children because one of the needs that we found was um, like uh, a lot of parents in our community were like, I don't want my kid to grow up to be the white supremacist who came into our town and like broke a bunch of windows and lit buildings on fire and targeted black churches. Uh, so like we started a, a white pa- a parenting white children group and uh, and then we are doubling down in our efforts for the Incarnation Fund, and we're doubling our cohorts for this next year. And we're really looking to create a response that's driven and um, and uh, centering people of color in the experience. Because I, I think, like one of the things that we see in Minneapolis, Minneapolis is such a predominantly white city that um, a lot of the responses are geared towards assuaging white guilt more than healing black communities and like we know that that will never result in our collective liberation so uh we're trying to continually be telling stories that center particularly black voices but just voices of color in general i'm like taking notes me too Um, yeah yeah i'm all off subject all over this interview but i will say no, that do parent, par- well i'm just it's just a comment because i we need your consulting at my kids school how do you do uh, parenting white children where let's uh, talk about that seriously uh, that's a bookmark for later but that is such important <laughs> it's such important work i just want to affirm a thousand times that that work is so important and then and we have a real question tyler but that work is so important please mm-hmm. keep it up i would love to hear more offline about that um, as we, we, I mean, my boys are at an all boys school and I mean, we're in constant conversation about, no, 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 no. How do you, what's your work? Yes. What's your work? So I'm really yeah. interested. Blessings on that. That's important, important community work. Gosh. And yeah. I, it, I mean, just in terms of all boys school, like yes. the themes of masculinity that are oh, showing up gosh. around this. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh man. my gosh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, y'all. Like, <laughs> we gotta, we gotta oh get. So my I, gosh, yes. And I, and I think that that's really like naming kind of how New City is trying to approach this from intersectionality of mm. like, uh, yes, George Floyd is representative of um, an acute racist violence, and like, how do we? Um, heal from what happened with George Floyd without addressing homophobia, transphobia, yeah. racism, racism. Yeah. 
documentation status, like all of these things. We saw all of these things play out in real time during the uprising. Because like I said, like during the uprising, we saw a huge influx of uh, people from out of state, from out of town, come in to Minneapolis and basically use Minneapolis as a rage room. Mm -hmm. So like um, I have folks in my church who found Nazi flags in their back alleys Mm. and water bottles full of accelerants and gasoline to Mm -hmm. start fires. And like the residents in the Powderhorn neighborhood were advised to um, like pack a grab bag in case they need to leave and, and that um, they should fill their bathtubs for uh, the threat of arson. Oh my God. And like all, so, and like helicopters constantly going overhead. Like it was really, really intense. Um, And, and all of this, by the way, was not conspiracy theory. Like we had like uh, security officials and like government officials feeding us information that said that there is a credible threat that, that the residents of our neighborhood will actually be facing arson. So this was like a legitimized fear. And, um, and when we were, you know, talking as a neighborhood about how all this was going on, um, like almost a hundred percent of the people who came, I obviously don't have statistics, but from our anecdotal perspective, a hundred percent of the people who came from out of town, to be causing this ruckus were men mm-hmm. and and white men. And so it's like, okay, uh, it's hard for me to believe that gender doesn't have a role in all of this and misogyny doesn't have a role in all this when there aren't any women showing up to be acting like this. Yeah. So like what exactly is happening to our boys, to our young men, to our older men that that this is seen as the appropriate outlet to be expressing uh, their emotions. It's so, I just think it's so important for us to name those facts and that reality, um, given the way that the media surrounded Minneapolis and the lines of communication too. I mean, I have I have some friends who pa- I have a lot of friends who pastor in Minneapolis now now another one in you and yeah um, <laughs> yeah but but really you know they were sending text messages and trying to utilize social media to get the word out that like listen <laughs> police and government officials are knocking on our doors and saying there are active white supremacist groups in your neighborhood tonight who are going to come in and you exactly the the go bag the the whole thing and I think. I think one of the things that, you know, hopefully podcasts like this and hopefully many others will do is like, tell that story. (laughs) You know, there's, that is a part of this story that, that needs to be told. Um, Mm -hmm. Tyler, I want to go back to one other thing you said, um, because, you know, you had, it's so inspiring to me that you had this year Mm -hmm. under your belt, you know, um, and that you felt like God was preparing your church for such a time as this, essentially. And you talked about community listening and sort of a process. It, it sounded like um, it sounds like there's a lot going on there with this, you know, theological imagination around incarnation and this community listening work. So my question is, how does a church do community listening well? What does that look like? Sure. Yeah. And. <laughs> I mean, I think if you were to ask me 
um, every year that I've been in ministry, my answer <laughs> would be slightly different, you know, sure. so much of community listening is adaptation mm-hmm. and um, yeah. learning how to listen. Uh, you learn how to listen better the more deeply you know the people you're listening to. And like, like certain methods or tactics just work better with certain people groups. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think the first premise is like, whatever your tactics, just hold it lightly and, and be more, um, like in, in the book, Lean Impact, Anne Mae Chang talks about, like, you have to love the problem more than you love the solutions or love the question more than you love the answers. Like the question is, what do the neighbors think? And you might think of like the coolest survey website and you try to get it out there. And and, uh, if you see that only one people group respond, then that means you just need to think of a different tactic to be listening to other people groups. So so I do think that there's a lot of adaptation involved. Um, Secondly, um, I am not, okay, there's going to be some trolls in the comments around this, but um, like I'm not an asset-based community development purist because ABCD yeah. talks about like you get people in the room, you uh, ask to tell stories, you listen for themes, and then you draw from the assets of the community. I agree with all of that. But in my experience, um, usually people don't have trust like there's not enough trust for people to be in a room unless there's some like excuse to talk to each other um so there's a uh lawnmower going outside right outside my apartment i i'm sorry that that's okay my dog is making a ton of noise in the background can you can you hear that as a badge should i go to another i actually can't i can't hear oh bless the lord you're fine i think you're oh isn't God a God who saves? So, <laughs> <laughs> a little thing. I'm just, I'm just saying. The, the empire sends a lawnmower and God sends noise cancellation. I'm just saying. <laughs> we, we, got, we got a revival going on, folks. Let Jesus be your noise cancellation. That must have been the opening quote for the podcast. <laughs> noise cancellation i was just thinking like how can we get this in (laughs) (laughs) keep your hand on the plow and don't let people whose hands are on the lawnmower distract you (laughs) oh lord okay so funny i mean what am i talking about okay so basically (laughs) um what I've, in my experience, like, especially in my neighborhood where folks are extremely underemployed, extremely busy, and, and very transient is like, no one wants, no one shows up to an airport to be like, so where do you want to fly? I don't know. Where do you want to fly? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Like everyone, <laughs> like wow. the yeah. conversation usually starts with like, I have a draft of something and I want to like hear your thoughts. I want to ask questions. And I want you to know that like any part of this draft can change because I really value community input. But um, usually, especially for like cold call kind of community listening where there's not necessarily deep relationship because you're trying to get to know the new neighbors. 
there has to be like something that you get like you can point to that's like we are talking about this because otherwise the the gap is so uncomfortable that most people shut down so um so a lot of times uh uh, i just find myself trying to think of clever excuses to be able to talk to people (laughs) (laughs) um that might mean like um earlier on i had created like a um like a photojournalism project where it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm telling stories of leaders and how their belief systems undergird their work. And I got to do an interview because I, it was quote unquote for a project, but all of this was really just a a one-on-one that felt not awkward (laughs) or, um, or like we had uh, initially started a fruit tree program where we planted fruit trees for free in our neighbor's yards and we did it together so it was like the neighbor would uh uh, collaborate with us as we're planting this tree and we would plant with a certain method that involved digging a six foot hole and or i'm sorry a three foot hole and then um, adding a lot of soil amendments so it was a fair amount of work Mm -hmm. and while the work was going on we could start the conversations Hmm. but the the like awkward pauses or the silence, or I don't know if I'm saying the right thing wasn't there because if anything, we could just like focus on planting the tree. Right. And I I find that nowadays because uh, we have a a stronger idea of who is in the new city community and our networks and there's deeper relationship and trust, we can have more like, listening sessions and surveys and kind of like one, like cold one-on-ones. But um, in the beginning, it really, there had to be like a, a story that people could buy into on why you would be talking to them. Cause otherwise they'll just assume that you're here to exploit them. I know um, Abigail has a couple of follow-ups, but I had a quick question about community listening when the, I'm assuming people in the community have a differing point of view and where, where you and the church go with that. You know what I'm thinking about too, Tyler? I'm thinking about, you know, in Charlottesville that whatever that was, what was that? A March in Charlottesville Mm -hmm. where the, um, there was these group of kind of like right wing, you know, white guys and they had like the, the, um, or those things that were those tiki lanterns, torches. the tiki torches. Thank oh you. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. But you know what? What <laughs> I have a visceral reaction to that, that video, yes. Yes. but, but the part that makes my heart sink a little is the part where they're with these tiki torches and they're walking and they're young men. They're young, yes. right? They're young. And they're like, you will not replace me. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, instead of being mad, what if I listen? I got to listen to that because that mm-hmm. is, painful that's fear Mm. you're living in fear when you when when you're that viscerally angry and the only thing you can say is you will not replace me so like i have to listen to that it it hurts but i have to listen so i'm wondering when the community is very diverse and the opinions are diverse how you open up to the listening that is you know that that is it brings fear. It brings anxiety the listening that is not what you necessarily want to hear how a community does that Hmm. And, and yeah. Take in, yeah, and take into consideration the important feelings behind the the racism or the racist thoughts, or because I got to think about why do you feel like you're being replaced? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? The complications yeah, the of that. Yeah, what's mm-hmm. the narrative of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Howard Thurman talks about um, in order for us to like really be able to undermine racism, we we have to strike at the ideological foundations that undergird the stories that we're telling ourselves. Amen. So it's Amen. like, Amen. yeah, what's wow. the, uh, I have to listen to, I, you won't replace me, but I also have to ask like, mm-hmm. what are the theological assumptions that create a worldview wherein someone can be replaced? And right. like, what, right. are, what are the shortcomings right. of like the pastoral ministry of like people, young men who have every access to privilege in the whole country and world believe somehow that like yeah in the history of the history history of the world that it's like that the construction of a worldview that they are somehow replaceable and um like i have a in my congregation there's a a mother of a uh, of an autistic child and um we interviewed her for a ser- we're doing a sermon series right now on police abolition and she said um here's what i know when you're raising an autistic child you can freak out about behaviors like if they start acting out or you can ask yourself what is the underlying need and try to address the underlying need. And that's usually what solves both the behaviors and deepens the relationship. And when we're looking at police abolition, uh, like when we look at crime, we have to be asking, what is the actual underlying need here? And how do how can our response strike at that underlying need instead of just the manifestation of those like foundations and, and stories that are leading to that action? Um, so, so yeah, in terms of community listening, uh, like, um, we have, (laughs) I don't, I I think that we're in flux in this, but like, we have pretty clear expectations of the white folks in our community. Like, Hey, if there is like an openly racist or openly problematic white person, like your role in the movement is to be able to talk to that person so that the burden of, of, educating people about our own oppression doesn't fall on people of color yet again. And that doesn't mean that people of color can't opt in and choose and, and part of ministry is opting in and part of sometimes our own healing is, is opting in to those conversations, but the default shouldn't be that a marginalized person has to justify their existence. So, um, so we do a lot of training with our white folks on how to like, um, in a very grounded, compassionate way to intervene into those moments and to start having those hard conversations on like a on a on a level where there is um, equal levels of race privilege, because that's how we lessen the impacts against the bodies of people of color. Amen. Mm-hmm. That is incredible, mm. vital work (laughs) ministry it really is thank you for your ministry um you know i want to cling to this place you took us to with thurman um and thinking about you know ideological foundations and i want to hearken back to and ask you to dig a little bit more deeply around this 
you know, it, you you could keep going down the path of like this theological imagination of incarnation that your community has. Um, but I'd also love to hear you talk a little bit about friendship. Um, mm. You know what? As you as you're building community and as you're listening, striving to listen well, as you're adapting in the midst of that process, as you're trying to really widen this under this ima- people's imaginations truly uh, about incarnation and who Jesus was, <laughs> you know, talk to us about and is talk to us about um, friendship. What what role does friendship play in that, and how do we think theologically about friendship? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely like a, a stereotype in kind of social justice. The social, the current like iteration of the social justice imagination is in two modalities. You're either like on the front lines with the movement, and that's usually like a high intensity, high energy place, or you're by yourself and like completely burned out and like watching Netflix for the eighth hour of the day or whatever, uh, doom scrolling through your phone. And, um, and there's kind of this like boom and bust of like, you're either like pushing it 120% or you are completely like non-responsive and, and just trying to like, um, uh, work through a bowl of cereal as you're, (laughs) as you're watching Netflix. And I think that friendship is like such an important middle ground of, um, being able to truly abide with people and see people for who they are and celebrate humanity and be able to, there's kind of this like um, social justice purity culture narrative. That's like, if I'm not actively Mm -hmm. advocating right now or like agitating an elected official or having hard conversations with the people around me, then I'm part of the problem and not part of the solution. And um, and I think that the reason why that narrative came around is because so many people are doing so little for justice that we kind of like mm. lean really heavy into that narrative because it, it, it brings people from like a zero to a three. But then there's folks who are already pushing at like an eight or a nine <laughs> And that narrative becomes um, uh, a, a, an excuse to hide all the bad habits around friendship <laughs> and, and an excuse to, to not be in deep relationship with people. And I think what I find at New City is that when people can be in meaningful, supportive, deep relationship that isn't just about comfort, but is also about accountability and growth as, as a human, um, people are able to show up better to social justice spaces and people are able to um, rest meaningfully instead of just like crash landing into, into a bed. So like friendships are kind of like, they, they just help monitor the intensity of activism and, and they help you stay in it longer um, because of that. So I'm, I, I think that friendships are really, really important. And at New City Church, we talk about, um, we have an ethic of centering marginalized voices. And we name all the time, like, it is, a, it is a spiritual practice to center marginalized voices. And the reason why we frame it that way is because there is no one person who embodies 
every dimension of marginalization. Mm. So that means that even um, like uh, several months ago, we had a black, queer, disabled member of our community say, you know what? I never realized how little I'm listening to the undocumented community. Mm. If I need to center marginalized voices by doing that. And I think that that's so powerful because that makes it, that makes centering marginalized voices the work of everyone. Mm. And uh, it might be concentric circles of <laughs> privilege or marginalization, but it's it's sure. like everyone has a posture to take. And, and we believe that Jesus took that posture towards the world. And that's how everything changed. Um, the Beatitudes are a great example of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I think that friendship in terms of centering marginalized voices is a really interesting <laughs> topic because sometimes people think, if I center marginalized voices, that means, okay, and I'm just going to be a hundred, like this is mostly white people who come to New City Church. There's a, like, if I center marginalized voices, that means that I am entitled to friendship with a black person. Mm-hmm. And what we find, mm. like a, a, a narrative that we find more helpful is like, you show up to community and center marginalized voices because it is good for your soul. And if you show up in such a way that, you inspire like the trust and welcome and warmth that black people want to be friends with you, then that is a choice that the black, we allow black people to make on their own agency. And like in the meanwhile, the sole work is still to center marginalized voices. And, and that's, and that doesn't mean uh, like there's no shame in any of this. Like the whole point is that we're building a movement. And if we get caught up in how, our interpersonal needs aren't being met because now I don't have a cool black friend, then everything, everything (laughs) will collapse underneath it, you know? Right. I'm really interested and and feel free to, you know, answer this from an intersectional place, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm very curious about how COVID-19 has impacted your, your church um, and the ways that you are ministering and your congregation is ministering, you know, how has that changed? Um, yeah. How has that impacted what, what you're up to? Oh, every single thing. Every, (laughs) every corner of it. Yeah. Certainly every programmatic corner, because all of a sudden, like overnight, we launched an online campus and our real life campus is closed and our online campus is where everything is happening. Um, So like already programmatically, but I I just, I mean, to just name a a note on our political analysis. um, So I'm Asian American. And I think that um, over the past several years, uh, there's been kind of this like awkward acknowledgement of like, yeah, Asians are like people of color, but like the dimensions of, of what that marginalization looks like in the Asian American experience is extremely ambiguous and is usually not brought up in race conversations. And so when COVID-19 happened and all of a sudden uh, Asian people were getting like beaten in the street and, uh, and like not allowed to show up to work and stuff, it, I do think it, it uh, created an awakening of like, wait a second, there are, there are fault lines present in our racial understanding in America and uh, whatever, like, you know, um, uh, model minority stories were kind of like 
whitewashed over those fault lines. When a crisis happens, all of a sudden they reappear and they're, they're just as bad as they were before, right? Um, so I do think that as an Asian American, there is, um, uh, there is a mobilization within Asian America, uh, both to interrogate internalized anti-Blackness and to um, be a little more persistent about naming the experience of Asian Americans and um, I believe it was there was a Gallup poll that broke down by race who has been showing up to the protests and who believes that the protests are going to be effective. And uh, it showed that in terms of ratio of population, Asian Americans were the most represented people group showing up to Black Lives Matter protests. And I, I believe that that represents kind of a sea change in um, in uh, Asian American activism, uh, contemporarily at least. Um, so I, I, th- I think that that's really, really important uh, to name. Secondly, in terms of, uh, yeah, <laughs> in terms of running an online ministry, like all of our worship went online, all of our groups are online, all of our, uh, the Black Healing Circle is online. And I think that um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny because we spent a whole year investing our theological chips into the theology of the incarnation. And now <laughs> we're like, don't let your bodies near each other. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, don't incarnate your relationship. Be your God. Right. So, uh, <laughs> um, so there is kind of a... Um, uh, there, there's something to be said about, uh, like how to do meaningful theology there. What I've been pleasantly surprised to discover though, is that there are a lot of people from all around the country who have been looking for churches like New City Church and there's nothing in their context. And now they're able to join into the fullness of our life as a church from a distance. Like we, um, just, after our worship service, we do a Zoom call to do kind of a conversation. And uh, we had someone from Michigan join who was like, I just came out, my whole life's a mess, and this church is exactly what I need right now. And I think that that's kind of the opportunity of of the moment that we're in is like, we need to, our ministry imagination needs to be global because we have access to a global network. And, uh, and that certainly is best done when rooted in a deeply contextual, deeply neighborhood based ministry imagination, but the conversations can be broadened to the whole planet. And so I think that what, what I've been finding is that New City Church has been dreaming way too small and Mm. that this, uh, COVID-19 has provided a lot of impetus for us to really imagine like what would it look like to live out our values in a global public square called the internet mm-hmm. mm. we're, we're recognizing time too so i have another quick two-parter sure is that okay okay sure yes so, so i can um... be more concise i can be <laughs> no, more concise we, no we're <laughs> concise you you should not be you do not need to be concise but one is just to um reflect back on what you were saying about, you know, Asian American activism and um, work in this moment. We have asked this, this has become a theme question for us um, since March for all the reasons that you spoke about, but what, 
what are you thinking when we say that protest is worship or worship is protest or it just to ask it as a question do you think worship is protest and if so how and if not why that's like one of our questions it's been thematic because it when we started this, we thought we were just talking about COVID on some level. Like this, mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. a time capsule to capture what's happening with COVID and how churches. But then the racial reckoning mm-hmm. sort of upended it all. And you know, and for me, I I, I have a couple pandemics that I'm in, but part of this yeah. is its racial reckoning. Um, and I won't go into the democracy stuff, but mm-hmm. so that's what I won't okay. go there. The, you can edit that part out, but yeah. No, no, no. I'll put tapping in the background if you go there. <laughs> so I won't go there today. But one is the question of protest being worship or not. And that's the one question. And then, of course, my questions have seemingly all been unrelated. The second one is what you what advice you have for other emerging leaders like yourself in this moment, for other church planters. You know, what happens now? I think that we will not we are not the same society and we cannot be that we came into this this COVID pandemic being. What do you have to say as we figure our way out of this, um, hoping to make our you know citizenry better and healthier and happier and listening to people and loving people, what what do you say to emerging leaders um, as you reflect on that? Yeah, that's a lot. I know. So um, I think, <clears throat> yeah. So uh, I have a book coming out, "Staying Awake: The Gospel for Changemakers." It's coming in twenty twenty one, and in it, I the the first chapter I, I dedicate to worship because the people that I'm in ministry with are the ones who um, it's kind of like the the opposite side of of what we're trying to get at with, when you name uh, uh, protest at worship because usually when we name protest at worship it's to try to mobilize generally apathetic Christians to to try to show up and to make a difference and to recognize that there's sacredness in social work, which obviously there is. Um, and for the, my community, like everyone's already at the protests, like everyone is already dedicating their whole lives to social change. Mm-hmm. And I found the pastoral move is to carve out a space called worship that isn't the protest because if I say that protest is worship, then everyone would be like, okay, great. That means I, can, I just need to worry about protesting, right. <laughs> which is what they were already doing. And that's what's been leading to this massive burnout wave. Right. So, um, so I, do, I, I try to protect the set aside nature of worship um, and, and create a space where it's like, this would be completely silly and pointless if God isn't real. Mm. But we believe that God is real and that God shapes us when we encounter that reality and we do that through worship and it has to be a dedicated set aside time so that we can move into the sacredness of public witness such as protesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you. And the um the second chat. Oh yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um in the in the book by um uh, the book Another Way, which is a book on leadership by Stephen Lewis, Matthew Williams, and Dory Baker, they talk about the difference between a warrior hero and a warrior healer. And uh, the hero is the one that the community sends out to fight the dragon. Like you go to the front, uh, be courageous and bold, 
say a really charismatic speech, go and be the warrior hero. And a warrior healer is someone who convenes community and works on the development and the wholeness of the whole community so that when the dragon comes, the whole community can respond. And I think that uh, right now, leadership formation is definitely geared towards warrior heroes, but we're encountering situations that require warrior healers. And uh, so my, my advice would be uh, to, to consider yourself a public healer in the community and uh, your job is to convene people and to uh, convene people in such a way that each of the people present become more capable of affecting change in their community than they were before and to undergird all of that transformation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think that like this is that's always true, but it's especially true in the situations that we're facing because so many of the challenges that we're facing are not acute threats like dragons. Like COVID nineteen is like a fraction of the size of a moat of dust. Like it is small, it's imperceptible, and it's deadly in kind of like a broad social way. But it's not like a cheetah that is hunting you. It's not like a bear, you know, it's not like one acute thing that you can figure out to master. It requires a a type of social agreement that the, wherein the entire community like advocates for our own healing. And just to name it, like, I think that COVID-19 is kind of a practice run for climate change. Like (laughs) the same things that we see happening in COVID-19, the disproportionate impacts to black and brown communities, the uh, uh, toxic masculinity, screwing up everything, <laughs> uh, like all of those themes are going to happen on a global scale with climate change. And our ability to survive those crises are going to largely depend on our ability to move collectively. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, um, you know, in terms of racism, we talk about like there's COVID-19 and then there's COVID-1619, <laughs> the legacy of, yes. of uh, slavery, you know, 400 years ago. Yes. And it's like, that is going to require such fundamental shifts for our imagination of what it means to be an American, that it can't be on the shoulders of one person. Like, I, I definitely encourage people to vote. Mm-hmm. I definitely encourage people to vote. Yeah. That voting should probably feel a little bit more like an enrollment into change rather than a delegation of responsibility to an elected official. Like we don't need to elect another hero. We need to create a movement where more and more people are seeing themselves as the agents of healing in their community in tandem with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. This interview was first featured in our episode entitled Trauma and Friendship, which also features the insights of Chaplain Lindsey Krinks and Professor John Swinton. You can learn more about Pastor Tyler Sitt and his forthcoming book, Staying Awake, at www.tylersit.com. That's www.tylersit.com. 
We hope you enjoy this full-length interview with Pastor Tyler Sipp. 